Strap yourselves in. We're in for a wild ride this term on the book of Revelation. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word, and we thank you for this part of your word. Uh, Help us with all the interesting, strange things. Uh, We pray that we are to concentrate in the heat, and we pray, please, that you would bless us as we do this, as we engage with your word to us, as we don't back away from it, but hear what you've got to say. Please challenge our assumptions. Uh, Comfort us if we need that. Give us strength where we need that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Revelation is something that many people, most people, I think, find very uh, fascinating and bizarre. Uh, For Hollywood, it's uh, great source material. Uh, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the, the beast, or there's many beasts, there's dragons, there's 666. Uh, think of the movies Omen, or End of Days, or every episode of The X-Files, or every, every basic horror movie. I found a list of the 666 greatest horror movies that refer to 666, uh, on the internet. Um, of course, they haven't got a clue what they're really talking about or what the book of Revelation is about, but uh, who cares? It's just uh, fun stuff. But then that's much the same for the Christian world as well sometimes. Uh, a friend of mine who's a preacher describes Revelation as the happy hunting ground of lunatics and heretics. You want to prove something from the Bible, any weird theory, go to Revelation, safe ground for you. Uh, and he's not alone. Uh, John Calvin in the 1500s wrote the apocalypse, which is the old fashioned name for the book of Revelation. The apocalypse finds men mad or leaves them so. There's some great encouragement from one of the great Christian thinkers, isn't it? You know, he wrote commentaries on every book of the Bible except Esther, Song of Songs and Revelation, the three scariest books of the Bible. There you go. <laughs> Uh, he's not alone. He had the great Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said, anyone who claims to understand the apocalypse is a madman. There you go. More great encouragement. And here we are about to start a whole term on it. And I'm going to say it is understandable and we can understand it. And so many of us, though, have a tendency just to shut up the book. It's just too hard. It's too weird. It's too strange. And so... Most of us may have read it once when we wanted to read through the whole Bible and prove to ourselves we did it, but then we chucked it in the too hard basket. But there are others who seem to revel in it, who love it, who almost read nothing else. They try to suss out all the connections and, and work out who these beasts are and who do they refer to. Are they real people? Are they in the world now? Are they about to turn up? What's the timetable of Jesus' turn? This 666, what is it? Is it here now? Uh, you know, is it, well, 30, 40 years ago? Bank card. Bank card with the B B B inside each other. That's six six six. That's that's the market. It's here. Or you know, barcodes on your products. Did you know they all start with the number six? They all end with the number six, and the number six is right in the middle of every barcode in the world. Is that what Revelation's talking about? Is it now? Is it the twenty first century? And people spend hours and books and writing about it and thinking about it just absorbed by it in fact for some it's almost as if it's the only book of the bible that they ever read and look at which is a very dangerous thing to do because you can't understand revelation without the rest of the bible 
because it constantly refers back to the rest of the Bible. In fact, no other book of the Bible quotes and alludes to and refers to other books in the Bible than the book of Revelation. It's just constantly picking up the themes and ideas and prophecies and other stuff. But even, So even though there's truly bizarre ideas that are out there floating around in Christian circles, and despite some of the great Christian minds saying, run away from it, I'm here to tell you that revelation is not something to be scared of. It is not something to be avoided. It's not something to put in the too hard basket. And it's not just something to leave to the kooks and the cranks. It's something that God has given us. It's part of his good word to us. He meant it to be read and understood and and loved. He meant it to be taken to heart and to be lived out. In fact, have a look at verse 3 of Revelation chapter 1. Let's open it up. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Do you want the blessing of God? Do you want God's blessing? We all do, right? I I take it inside at least, because we don't want to get out there and say, yeah, yeah, that we're all going, yes, I do, right? Blessed are those who read it. And so, blessed to our Bible reader this morning, Katie. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. So what is it? What is this weird, strange book so full of weird images and ideas that we're, that we're supposed to gain the blessings of God from? Well, we're told in the first few verses exactly what it is. First thing he says is, well, second word, it's, it's a revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you know what a revelation is. We've just had one uh, in the kids' spot. What was in the box? It had to be revealed. Uh, a revelation is, is when something's hidden and it's, it's brought out into the open. You know, the front covers of the magazines down on the racks at the newsagents might say, startling revelation. Angelina and Brad back together, you know, kind of, you know, or torn apart again. I don't know. I don't keep up with it all. Um, you know, they've got something to share. There was a secret. They're going to expose some, something that was hidden in some starlet's life. What was not public is now disclosed. It's not necessarily something mysterious or something strange, but it's something you'd never guess. You'd have to be shown it. Uh, I've got some things tucked away here under lectern. There's a little shelf here for those who didn't know. Um, And I could keep them a secret from you. Uh, Do you want to know what's under here? What, What do the preachers hide? Under the lectern. Well, some of them keep a glass of water. There's not one here today, though. Uh, sometimes there's uh, little tubes here, the preacher's tubes. There you go, to keep it going so you can speak for hours without having to take a sip and just, you know, and I've got two of them. That's two hours worth. There you go. That's, uh, <laughs> I've got my keys. I've got, I've got my dog collar here from the 8 o'clock service. Um, my phone. There's some spare hymn books just in case. You know, we, we don't need to run back there. And uh, I've, got, I've got my Nerf gun that I keep here in case anyone falls asleep. You know, it's loaded, ready to go anytime. Just, uh, just saying. Uh, there you go. <laughs> It's not mysterious, it's just some stuff that's there that that I had to show you. You would never have guessed. This book is a revelation. And in fact, the word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypse, uh, which 
in our minds makes us think of coronavirus and fires and, you know, destruction, the end. It's about, everything's about to be ruined by zombies or aliens or something. But the word apocalypse is actually a word just taken straight out of theatre. Now, Greek theatre, which we still use today, we have an apocalypse every time you go to the play uh, and even sometimes to the movies because uh, it's literally the term for the drawing back of the curtain at the start of the play. They go, it is the unveiling. It is the drawing back of the curtain to show the actors behind, to show what's on stage. Uh, that's why this book is a revelation, exactly what it is. It's the drawing back of the curtains of reality. It's a view of the real drama that is going on that you can't see just day to day as you look around and do life. There is a drama going on behind the scenes so we can see the spiritual realities of the world. Now, it's a revelation about Jesus Christ, you know, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we're going to see lots about him. But it's also the revelation, notice there in verse 1, that was given to Jesus. That's a very strange start, isn't it? Verse 1 again, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. It is a revelation from God the Father to God the Son. Now, there's, you can get into some all sorts of theological stuff there about omniscience and stuff like that. How does knowledge work? That the Father has to reveal something to the Son. But the Father revealed something to the Son in order to show his servants what must soon take place. He made, Jesus made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who then testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. You see the logic, God revealed it to Jesus, Jesus to the angel, the angel to John, and John explains it to us. Who was intended for all along this revelation? It was intended for Jesus' servants. God gave it to Jesus for his servants. That is, it is for us. It is for Christians. It's not a revelation that's given to the world. It's not a revelation that's given to madmen alone. It's a revelation given by God for ordinary, everyday, normal Christian people like you and me who are servants of Jesus. This is our book. Why was it given? Well, again, verse 1, it was given to show what must soon take place. That is to show what is about to happen. Now, this was written a while ago, so what was about to happen already is happening, okay? Uh, or in verse 3, the end of verse 3, because the time is near, or perhaps better, the time is at hand, the time is imminent. It is about what must take place next. Or verse 19, it is to show that what is now and what will be. It's about what will take place as the very next thing. It's not like the Old Testament. The book of Daniel's got many strange things. In fact, lots of the images come from the book of Daniel and other places. But you get to the end of the book of Daniel in Daniel 12, and Daniel is told, very last thing, to shut up the scroll, shut up the book, and hide it. That it's not for him and it's not for his age. And that it would not and could not be understood until the time of the end. And so Daniel, like all the Old Testament people and prophets, were looking ahead to things that were far off, that were far away, to somewhere distant in the future, right? Not what was happening next, but what was happening a long time from now. But in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have entered in to that age that they spoke about. We have entered into the end. We have entered the last times, which is why we date everything before Christ 
or after Christ or AD, Anno Domini. We are in the year of the Lord. Things have changed. There is a new era, the year of the Lord. We are here in the last times, not because it's 2020 and uh, you know, and it's been a long time since Jesus, and it just happens to be the signs right now that uh, he's going to come back next year. Now, he might do that, but that's not why it's the end times. But because in his coming and in his death and resurrection, in his ascension into glory, Jesus has brought in this new age, the times, the end times that the Old Testament spoke about, the age of the Spirit, when the Spirit would come, when he would gather his people to himself, and that's what he is doing. And we've been in those end times since he came. It's been a long time from our point of view. But this revelation was given to us so that we might understand these times in which we live, whichever year we happen to be in post-Jesus. Here is the unveiling of the spiritual realities, the pulling back of the curtain so that we can understand what is taking place and so that we can understand what must happen next. Because those two things, actually, those two realities, the now and what is about to happen, they're intimately connected. They're joined together. When you understand reality now, you can, you can know what's going to happen next. I want to show it to you in some pictures. So I brought my handy dandy machine here tonight. You know, here's, here's a man out for a row on a nice river. There you go. But, you know, he doesn't understand that you know, there's a play going on and there's a curtain that's disguising half of the stage. And, you know, he doesn't know what's going to happen or what is the reality. So he can't work out what's happening next. I pull back the curtain uh, and show you the reality, showing the reality of what is now, what's going to happen next. He's going off the edge, right? There's no coming back from that. Oh, here's someone else. There you go. You like my drawing skills? Uh, you know, out for a walk on a rainy day, got the umbrella, uh, comes to the road, looking the wrong way up the street and things. Uh, here is the reality. <laughs> right? What happens next? Right? <laughs> Boom, gone. That's what's going on in the book of Revelation. The things of this book are not some distant future which John and the Christians back then would never come across. They would never encounter. They are about the present realities, what happens now, which guarantees what happens next. But notice it's not just a revelation, right? It's, it's also other things. It's a letter. Very clearly it's a letter. It's written by a real man to real people. And so verse 4, it's John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, who are they? Who's John? Well, we're talking about the Apostle John. Uh, you might recall, um, if you've ever read anything of the Gospels, that he was one of the first four followers of Jesus. Uh, left you know, fishermen and followed Jesus. Uh, he became, uh, soon after, one of the twelve who were the closest to Jesus. In fact, of that group, he was in the, the three of them who were Jesus' best friends. In fact, he tells us in John's Gospel, he was Jesus' best friend. There you go. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. Uh, and by the time that he wrote this letter, he was the last of the 12 apostles still alive because all the rest had been executed. They had all been murdered for being Christians. They had been executed for their faith. James, his brother, was the first to go. Within a year of Jesus' resurrection, Jesus, uh, James was beheaded by King Herod. 
for preaching the gospel and the rest followed suit, some sooner, some later, but they'd been burnt to death, crucified, crucified upside down, run through with swords, they'd all died and he is the last of the apostles. Who is he writing to? Well, it's addressed to the seven churches in the province of Asia, real people, real Christians. And they're even named for us. Thanks, Katie, for uh, having a stab at them. I reckon here's top tip when you're reading the Bible and you come to weird place names and people's names, just go confidently. No one else knows. So uh, you have the authoritative word then. Uh, they're named in verse 11. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Uh, you don't know where they are? Well, here they are on a map. Uh, you can see uh, Italy, the boot up there, top left. Uh, there's Greece in the middle, and then across the sea, the Aegean Sea, you come to what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was the Roman province of Asia, not, not the continent Asia that we talk about, uh, what's sometimes referred to now as Asia Minor, uh, up around modern-day Turkey. And it's that yellow area, if you were to... If you've got very good eyes, you might make out the, the names of the seven places there. Uh, and, but that's, that's the seven churches that he's writing to. They are sort of main cities in the region uh, and they're churches that meet there. So it's specifically written to these guys. But on another level, seven, like most of the numbers in the book of Revelation, is symbolic. See, the number seven stands for what is whole or complete. And it's one of the things you've got to get used to in the book of Revelation. There's references all the way through this letter to, of, to colours and numbers and other symbols, which, which might seem strange and confusing and confronting at first, but actually with a little bit of work you can figure them out pretty easily. I mean, we do the same thing with symbols today of numbers and colours. Uh, we Anglo-Saxons tend to think that, you know, seven is the lucky number, right? Yeah, you know, lucky seven. Yeah, or the number 13, what's that? That's what? It's bad luck, that's right. In fact, hotels in America do not have level 13 because they are so... Skeptical about the number 13, you know, that is bad luck. So you don't want to be on floor 13, especially in a casino hotel. Uh, I reckon you don't want to be on floor 14 because you know they're just lying. It really is 13. But anyway, that's, uh, <laughs> um, we think of white as the color of purity. We think of red as, as danger or fast, right? Uh, kind of thing, fast cars, but dangerous, right? You, you know, or stop. Don't go there. Uh, but other cultures think very differently about numbers and colours. The Chinese, for instance, think of the number four as death. They think of the number eight as prosperity. So the cars in Chatswood have the most number eights of any cars in Australia in the number plates because they want them because it's going to bring prosperity and money because the same symbol in Chinese for eight is, is money. There you go. Um, uh, they think of, for the Chinese, white doesn't mean purity, it means death. And red means joy, happiness. And so the Anglo-Saxon bride walks down the aisle all dressed in white, uh, but her Asian friends are horrified because why is she wearing death colours to a celebration? The Chinese bride walks down the aisle all dressed in wed, and we think there's the scarlet woman, which means something very different to the joy that she means, right? And so 
You've got to get used to the colours and the numbers and the symbols, right? If you don't know the symbolism at the wrong, in the wrong culture, you get very confused, maybe a bit upset. But so with the book of Revelation, four, for instance, means the earth. Seven is completion, the whole. Six is the pretension of being something else. It's not quite seven, it's faking it. Um, for white, it's not purity, right? It's, and it's not death. White, in the book of Revelation, is victory, Right, the the triumphant victors wear white. Uh, pale grey is the colour of death. It's really literal. It's the colour of a corpse. That is the colour of death. Um, you don't need to remember all those things right now, but just keep them in mind that we need to understand the symbolism of the day, not just read our own modern symbolism straight into it. But come back to the number seven. Because that comes up all through chapter 1 and right through the book. There's seven seals on God's scroll. There's seven trumpets. There's seven bowls of God's wrath. There's seven lampstands. There's seven stars. There's the, the number seven. It's always about completion, the entirety, the whole thing. And so John, as he writes to these seven particular churches in his day about things that really do concern them, he's actually writing to the whole church, to the entire church, the worldwide church in every nation and in every age. It's to anyone who's Jesus' servant in order to bring blessing to us from God if we read it and take it to heart. Why this man? Why this time? Why did these particular churches? Well, come to verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, that is a Sunday, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And he names the seven, but it's also to the entire church. See how he introduces himself. He says he's a Christian brother and companion. He's not somehow separate, different, you know, an elite. He, he is a brother and companion. And like those he's writing to, he shares the same marks of belonging to Jesus. What does he share? What are the marks? I share with you the suffering. I share with you the kingdom. And I share with you the patient endurance that are ours in Christ. It's not the kingdom, the power and the glory. It's the suffering, the kingdom and patient endurance. And, and they're all wrapped up together in John's mind. It's what the church experiences. It's what the church was experiencing back then. And it's what we experience. And it was he was experiencing himself. He shares in suffering because like many as he's writing to us, we'll see next week, he's suffering greatly for his faith. All his friends have been killed, his companions. You know, his best friend and disciple, uh, Polycarp, uh, who's not in the Bible, but you know, we know from church history, was his, John's disciple, uh, torn apart by lions at 80 for standing for Jesus. John himself's here on the island of Patmos. He's not on a Kentucky tour. Uh, it's the Roman equivalent of Australia to the English 300 years ago. It's the penal colony. He's in exile, in custody, in the penal colony. John is doing time. He's a convict. 
He's shipped off to serve a sentence. What's his crime? I'm here on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I'm arrested for being a public Christian and telling others about God. For preaching the gospel, that's why he's suffering. He shares in the kingdom because as a Christian, he's, he's under the rule of Jesus. That's how we all share in the kingdom, isn't it? We've been brought into a new kingdom. And he looks with confident hope to sharing in the triumph of the kingdom when in his own words later on in the letter, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. Imagine being there, being in his cell with him day after day, a prisoner. He's watching all the pretensions of power around him, the warders, the soldiers all armed to the teeth. The judges may be turning up, but one day he knows the real king. The ruler of the kings of the earth will show where the true power really is. And so finally he shares impatient endurance because that's what you get when you mix a share of the kingdom with a share of suffering. If I've got those two perspectives right, then I can afford to be patient and to endure. There's no point in giving up if that's what's ahead. There's no point in giving up. And, and as history is paraded in front of our eyes through this book in very strange terms, as the curtain is pulled back and the spiritual realities of history and the world are revealed to us, that's the constant theme of the book of Revelation, the suffering and the kingdom. And as the spiritual realities are unveiled through the book, as the curtain is drawn back, we see behind the scenes from God's perspective what's happening. Yes, there are and there will be wars. Yes, there is and there will be famine and earthquakes. There will be great evil. There is great evil in this world. Yes, God's people can and they will and they do suffer horrendous things for Jesus' name. In that age, in this age, in years to come, it will all be the same. They are opposed and oppressed and maybe even martyred. Like Polycarp, like the other 11. A couple of us from church went to uh, the Simeon Network's 10-year uh, anniversary. Simeon, uh, our link, one of our link missionaries is Lewis Jones, runs this network of uh, Christian academics and postgraduates across the country, tours Australian universities, reading the Bible, praying, organising prayer meetings and helping them to figure out how to reach the undergraduates and the other staff on campus and so on. Fantastic night, very encouraging. We heard from one vice-chancellor who's a Christian, uh, about uh, a Christian lecturer on campus uh, who thought they were the only Christian on the entire university staff. They were unaware. Uh, it was a lady from overseas. She wrote to the vice-chancellor to say, I've, I am a woman. I am from another culture that is not white. I've experienced no discrimination based on my gender. I have experienced no discrimination based on my race, but I constantly face discrimination based on my belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. He called her in and said, what's, what's this discrimination you face? She said, the other staff, my seniors keep telling me I will never be promoted. They say I'm a fine scientist. They really respect my work. But because I have these nonsense beliefs, 
my brain must be addled and I will never get a promotion at this place. The staff and the other students walk behind me down to the station after work every day and harangue me and tell me what an idiot I am and that I should give up on this nonsense Jesus stuff. Every day I walk to the station being belittled by my students and my peers. Right now, that's minor in the world today of Christianity, but that's happening on Australian university campuses to one of the smartest individuals in the country. Turns out the boss, the vice-chancellor, is also a Christian. There's another one on campus. He says there's actually lots of us. And so he's interested. And there's, there's companions. They've not all gone through that, but these are the things happening in the world. This is the things that Revelation talks about, the oppression, the opposition. But don't think for a moment that God has not foreseen it or think that Jesus is helpless to do anything about it. Do not think for a moment that Jesus has lost his grip on the world or, or that he won't ultimately end the pain and bring in his kingdom. The curtain is drawn back so that we can see what is happening and, and also why it's happening, so that we will hang on, so that we will endure, so that we won't lose hope. Indeed, so that we might even get up again tomorrow, get out there and go, you know what world, you know what colleagues, you know what students, you need Jesus. The Christian staff at Newcastle University have all got together. They have created a poster. They've taken a photo of themselves uh, and put a, their photo, their name and what faculty they are from. Uh, and underneath they've written, all these people believe that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. They believe everything written in the Bible. If you want to know about it, ask us why. And they've all got it above their desks. Right? They're putting themselves out there. Why do they do it? Well, because they believe. They know the kingdom. They know what the world needs. And this is written so that we will be like that. That we will stand up and we'll serve him in joy and in courage and in discipline and we'll seek first his kingdom and righteousness in spite of the sufferings and the trials we face. This book is for the church that might well feel outnumbered and outgunned. There is an eternal reality that God wants us to know, that Jesus wants us to know, so that we might have patient endurance that our brothers and sisters in Christ have needed all the time, that we, they still need around the world and still will need in the future. What is the reality? What's behind the curtain? Well, if you come back next week, I'll show you. And then every week afterwards, because we're going to spend the whole term looking at reality from God's point of view. But for those of us like me who are impatient, who can't wait and need instant gratification, we're given a small glimpse of it. In fact, I think even in the introduction, it's to whet our appetites. In fact, I think what's revealed behind the curtain really is the key to this reality. And perhaps this is the very thing that you need to hear and see right now. Perhaps it's as a comfort because you're feeling overwhelmed as family and life pressure you to give up on Jesus. Perhaps you need it as a reminder of what life truly is about because you become a bit distracted. Perhaps you need it as a rebuke because you're actually wandering off in some different direction. Perhaps you need it just as something to savour and rejoice and give you strength and, and so you can feel the depth of it in your bowels. 
Because what John is shown first and foremost is the reality of Jesus Christ himself. He is not what you expect. John hears this voice telling him to write down, write this letter to the, to the churches. And like it's going to happen so many times in this book, John hears something, he turns around to see it, and it's nothing like what he thought. And very often it's, it's completely unexpected. What would you expect to see if you were in a cell and someone, a voice behind you said, write this down now and send it off? What would you, who would you expect to see if you turned around? Your boss? I mean, they might have ordered you to take, take a memo and send it off before. Um, would you expect an armed guard or a soldier telling you to write something down, your last confession? You know, he's a prisoner after all. Perhaps he expected that. What about an angel? Uh, John saw an angel at the empty tomb who told him what to communicate to the others, right? Maybe that's what he's going to see. He turns around. And I very much doubt he was expecting to see what he saw, that is Jesus himself, but looking nothing like he's ever seen him before. And maybe... Maybe you want to do something a little bit different now. Just close your eyes for a couple of moments, not so you can go to sleep, but I'm going to read out this description and see if you can imagine it, what he is seeing as he sees it. Comfortable? It's from verse 12 if you can't bother to be, you know, bed or close your eyes because that might be a bit scary, but, you know, close your eyes. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me And when I turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands. And amongst the lampstands was someone like a son of man. He was dressed in a robe that reached down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. I mean, you think of the robes of royalty. He's clothed in dignity and authority. The hair on his head was white as wool, as white as snow. It's so white because he's so old, he's ancient. And his eyes were like a blazing fire. They are piercing eyes that just see through everything, that stab you. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. I don't know if you've seen metal coming out of the fire, red hot, glowing as they pulled straight from the flames. And his his voice was like the sound of rushing waters, you know was deep and powerful, irresistible. Perhaps a bit like the breakers that John would hear pounding on the cliffs of Patmos. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Can you imagine someone who could hold the stars? And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Got that picture in your mind? What would you think? What would you do? That'd be pretty frightening, I imagine. If you, that was actually standing before you. Freaked out. What the heck is going on here? It's a vision of someone incomparable 
someone breathtaking, someone utterly glorious and weird and different and someone all-powerful, someone no one can oppose. I mean, who wants to go near someone with a sword sticking out their face, you know, um, you know who's on fire, like metal? It's, it, and it's images that are pulled from all parts of the Old Testament and kind of bundled up together, pictures like from Daniel 7 that we read, where one, like a son of man, is given all power and dominion and authority. And who is this? Verse 13, it's one like a son of man. It's, this is the one. We've already been told, coming in the clouds, just like Daniel 7. But he's also like the Ancient of Days from the same vision who gave the Son of Man his authority. God on his throne with hair as white as snow, resplendent in animal glory with fire all around his feet. But he's also like God as he rides on the chariot on the top of the heavenly creatures in Ezekiel chapter 1 who is half on fire and looks as though he's made of bronze flesh and has come straight out of the smelter. And he's the one who's going to show up later again and again in this book, especially with that sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth with which he wipes out the enemies of God in chapter 19 and 20. He is unassailable. He is invincible. He cannot be challenged. He will not be defeated. Is that Jesus as you picture him? When you think of Jesus, who you know and I take it you love, do you think of him like that? That's how Jesus wants John to think of him. That's how Jesus wants us, his servants, to think of him now. Jesus is not the soft, almost effeminate man of religious art with lovely blue eyes, gazing lovingly on everything, with long flowing locks, (laughs) Anglo-Saxon, sweet and sickly. Nor is Jesus a baby in his mother's arms. We've just had Christmas. He was a baby at one point. But not only did he grow up, this is who he is now. And he's certainly not the Jesus of Talladega Nights as they pray to baby Jesus in his golden diapers, six pound, four ounce, baby Jesus. You know, or I like to imagine Jesus in his tuxedo tee, so he's kind of formal, but he's also here to party. You know, even my best friend Jesus, well, he is my friend, he is the greatest friend. And he loves me like no other, but he's not my buddy who I go fishing and camping and give birthday punches to. We're not pals like that. And he's not the Jesus that so many Christians in the first world want him to be. Tame, just there to make sure my life is okay and succeeds and gets me ahead and he's my servant always in order to fulfil my dreams. He is the supreme master. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the king. I am the servant. Now, these things we should already know from the gospel. Indeed, John knows them. 
He's already reminded us of the truth of Jesus in terms we're much more familiar with at the start of the letter back in verse 4. Grace and peace to you from him who was and is and is to come. That is God, he's eternal. And from the seven spirits, which I take it from the number seven, is the, the totality, the omniscient totality of the Holy Spirit who sees everything in the world from chapter 5 and verse 6, if you want to look it up in a few weeks' time. Uh, and it's from Jesus Christ. And then follows a long description of Jesus Christ in very familiar terms. If you get any part of the Bible, right, he is, uh, what does he say here? Uh, uh, he is the faithful witness. Yeah, everything Jesus says is true. Uh, he is the firstborn from among the dead. You can read that in Colossians. But it's not just the first back from the grave for his resurrection body. Uh, no, he is the heir. That is what the firstborn is. He is the heir, the Lord of the living and the dead. He owns it all. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. We know that. He's also the one, he goes on in verse 5, who the one who loves us, the one who has freed us from our sins by his sacrifice. He's done that, his blood. He's also the one who made us to be a kingdom and to be priests to serve God. And he's the one to whom all glory and power be given forever and ever. Amen. That, that is what the New Testament says about Jesus. When we occasionally stand and remind each other in the creed, we, we can say those things. You can read those words, you can recite them to each other, you can know them to be true as a piece of information like the fact that the sky is blue or two and two equals four or, you know, but when you see him in all his glory as John was just seeing him and splendor in this vision, when you see that he is God Almighty, the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man in blazing glory, then you know it in a different kind of way. You know it on a different kind of level than just abstract truth claims. John knew the facts about Jesus. He already knew all those things. But when he saw him in all of his glory with the curtain pulled back, what happened? Verse 17. When I saw him like that, I fell down as though dead. Just boom. He'd known Jesus for lots of years. He'd served Jesus for many more. And never once had he done that. It's not ecstasy. You know, he's not having a Toronto blessing. It is abject terror. It is the same response that all the prophets had when coming face to face with God. Ezekiel did in chapter 128. Daniel did in chapter 8. Of Daniel. It's the response of Isaiah when he saw just the tip of the train of God's robe filling the temple in a vision and he cried out, Woe to me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. It's the weight of the dawning realization of just how great this one is and just how unworthy we are. It is to be undone. And yet what does Jesus in all his glory say to John, collapsed on the floor as though dead in terror? Do not be afraid. You only say that to someone who is. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I, I alone hold the keys to death and to Hades.
This is the real Jesus now. This is the one who rules life and death. He is the one who is before all things. He'll be there after all else has ended. And with him as our Lord, there is nothing to fear. Those who oppose him, who will not bow the knee to him, they have a lot to fear. That sword is for them, but it's not for us. Because our Lord is the Lord. The kings and the powers of this world might think that they wield the power of death. Trump or Obama, they might think they're someone's because they can nuke the world. Right? The, the Shah of Iran, he might think he's someone. He can kill people, right? He's ordered the deaths already. Satan himself murders people by his lies, but it is Jesus who holds the key to death and to Hades. And you know what? He's right here with us. As the angel explains what John's seeing, he says, you know those seven lampstands that this bloke was walking amongst in all his glory? You know what they are? They're the seven churches. And not just the seven churches in Asia Minor. He's not wandering around in Turkey. He's with all of his church, his entire church, his complete church. And you know those stars that he has in the palm of his hands? Well, they're the leaders of his churches who often face the worst of the brunt of the world's fury. But Jesus has got them right in the palm of his hand. And if he's got them, he's got you. This is Jesus. This is the reality that we have to face. Jesus in all of his glory Have you taken that reality to heart? Do you see him as he truly is? He is the heart of the reality that God has got to show us as he pulls back the curtain. And it's only when we face these realities that we're going to find the blessing that this book is offering, the blessing of being his, being his child, being forgiven, being his servant now and forever. Forgiven, loved, completely safe in him, And it's only then that we can patiently endure with our fellow brother and companion, John, indeed with all of our brothers and companions in suffering and the kingdom around the world. And so I hope you're excited to get more of him as we go along this term. Father, these are astonishing things, things meant for our blessing. Help us not to be afraid, not to be afraid of the book. And not to be afraid, even as we're confronted with Jesus and all his risen glory, help us to know the forgiveness that is ours. Help us to know the victory that will be ours one day and the strength that we have because we're his servants for his kingdom. And help us to patiently endure. Be with that Christian lecturer. Be with that vice-chancellor. Be with our brothers and sisters in Christ this very day who are being arrested and tortured and spat at and hit and kicked and even killed for naming Jesus as their Lord. Help them to stand firm in their faith, indeed to stand joyfully, boldly, proclaiming the hope that is in him. Amen.